Happy 4th of July. If you are listening in in the United States, this is a big year because today's the 4th of July. Check the day of the week. It's Wednesday. That means Thursday, Friday, take them off, holidays, five-day weekend in the U.S. So happy 4th of July. Something we're not able to do right now because he's really busy, but I hope to be able to do tomorrow or maybe certainly Friday or things will have settled down by next week is talk to Rich Shea. You know Rich Shea? He's the president of the International Federation of Competitive Eating because every 4th of July, of course, the Coney Island Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest is held. You will probably see all kinds of highlights of this. You don't have to dig too far. They usually pop up in your social media feeds because people like Joey Chestnut come close to setting records. It's wild how much of a science competitive eating has become. And Rich Shea is the guy who was a co-founder back in, I think it was 2003, of the International Federation of Competitive Eating. Remember they used to have shows and they would have people eating bowls of mayonnaise as fast as they could. Well, they still have competitions outside of the hot dog eating contest. And, in fact, earlier today, Miko Sudo won the women's competition. She was able to eat 41 hot dogs and buns. 41 in 10 minutes. Have you ever seen how they do this? They will take the hot dog out of the bun. They'll actually wet the bun. So you don't eat it like a hot dog. It's not, hey, can you pass the relish already? Trying to get this hot dog down in 10 minutes. It's not like that. In fact, they have this down to a science. So think of how many 41 hot dogs and buns would be in 10 minutes. That's huge. Well, in 2013, Joey Chestnut on the guy's side, down 72 in 10 minutes. And he's been credited with the world record for hot dogs in 10 minutes at 73 and a half. But I don't think it was at Nathan's. This guy also eats other things. Picture this. 182 wings in 10 minutes. 144 hard-boiled eggs in 10 minutes. And I'm not sure whether he did this in Canada or not, but Joey Chestnut also holds the world record for poutine in 10 minutes. What would that be? Three plates? How much could you possibly get down? Wouldn't your heart just stop? 25 and a half pounds of poutine in 10 minutes. So at some point, we have to talk with Rich Shea from the International Federation of Competitive Eating because he will describe how much of a science it is. He's at Nathan's right now at the hot dog eating contest. So we'll let him do that, and instead, we'll turn from competitive eaters to, well, eating to live, but not among humans. We have raccoons all over the place. You see them here, there, and all over. I don't think they're as plentiful in London as skunks. That's for sure. But we have raccoons, and as our subdivisions have stretched cities, some of the wild animals have been affected, and they've decided to do like what they did in Over the Hedge, that little cartoon movie. They've decided to invade neighborhoods to eat. And raccoons, they're kind of a perfect little species to do this because they have those human-like hands. And they can 
pull lids off stuff and they can get into your garbage. And because of that, there seems to be an issue for raccoons. They're not eating competitively. They're still eating to survive, but they're not eating the greatest stuff. And in fact, Laurentian University has come out with a new study that looked at the health of raccoons, trying to figure out whether maybe the diets that we are eating, and remember, we throw away a lot of food, maybe are going to the raccoons that are invading our garbages. Not necessarily at home, but maybe in parks, maybe outside restaurants. Joining us right now is a man who has helped to put these results together, Dr. Albrecht Schulte-Hostetter. Dr. Schulte-Hostetter, how are you this afternoon? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I am fascinated by the fact that raccoons <laughs> have eating problems. Can you classify exactly what that would mean? Well, you can't. I mean, you have to understand that raccoons eat uh, human food waste, right? I mean, this is a, a known problem, especially in places like Toronto, where they've actually redesigned uh, green bins to prevent raccoons from getting into them. Uh, so we know that there's an issue. I mean, certainly when I was a, a grad student or uh, at uh, Western, I mean, we saw big fat raccoons the size of small bears waddling around campus. So my research was really interested in trying to understand, like, what are the, the consequences of this kind of urban diet? So were you actually inspired to look into this based on your time at Western? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I remember being on campus and, and like, you know, it was the evening uh, and I remember seeing this large shadow walking down you know the pathway and it was this very large raccoon and for a while it probably didn't look like a raccoon well i mean there are no bears in london as far as i know so <laughs> it had to be something <laughs> so you see these abnormally large raccoons and you know what campsites are big for this too if your campsite is ever invaded by raccoons they can be really really big so yep. you get to laurentian and you decide to do a little research how do you research whether or not raccoons have dietary issues yeah so i i mean you know i had the original idea uh, and I've, I've been working on sort of uh, urban ecology and the effects of urban life on wildlife for a little bit um but i have a colleague at the university of guelph at the vet school there um, claire jardine who had a, a bank of blood samples that she had collected from raccoons from uh, a few different populations and uh, the, those populations varied in the amount of of human food waste that uh, the raccoons would have access to uh, and so um in collaboration with a colleague at laurentian uh, jeff gagnon who's actually an obesity and diabetes researcher uh, we got those blood samples and uh, we tested them for uh, a very commonly used um, protein that uh, actually biomedical researchers and doctors use to assess whether a person is at risk for diabetes. So this, pro this protein uh, binds glucose and it gives you a sense of how much glucose has been in the bloodstream for about the previous two weeks. We're talking with Dr. Albrecht Schulte-Hostetter, who is a Western University alumnus and now a professor of evolutionary ecology at Laurentian. And we're looking at raccoons who have dietary issues. So is it possible for a raccoon to have diabetes? Yeah, you know, our, our research didn't really test that per se. We looked at, um, at the amount of blood glucose that these animals have. So the, the ones that we found that had the most access to garbage or to uh, human food waste had 
had the highest uh, amount of this blood glucose uh, binding protein. So they, we consider them hyperglycemic. Um, and hyperglycemia is a, a risk factor for diabetes. There's, there's one study that came out. There's a, a, there was a single raccoon that was at a wildlife refuge center, and it was brought in because it was sick to a veterinary clinic, and the, the vets there report that this animal had diabetes. But we, we aren't in that position with the data that we have to test whether you know, the raccoons that are in urban centers at large are, are diabetic or not. Okay. We may not throw out enough into our own garbages. And you know what? If a raccoon comes around enough, all of a sudden you're getting those receptacles like you described that have the locks on them so that the raccoons can't get in. But there are some areas that struggle with that. Campsites would be one. You looked at raccoons at the Toronto Zoo. What did you find? Yeah, so Claire uh, collected samples from uh, three different areas. One was a swine farm where where we assumed that uh, there was very little food waste. Um, the other was a set of conservation areas in the Kitchener-Waterloo area, where uh, we argued that they were uh, had a, a moderate um, availability for food waste. And then finally, the grounds of the Toronto Zoo, as you said. So the Toronto Zoo is uh, home to uh, a number of fast food restaurants. Uh, we assume that the raccoons, I mean, anecdotally, we know the raccoons eat that, uh, that garbage, that food waste. Uh, and there is where we found that those raccoons have uh, double uh, the amount of this uh, glucose binding protein in their bloodstream. So they, they have twice as much blood glucose as the others. So in finding these results, you are obviously determining what? Well, I think what we're finding is that um, the food that we are eating, which affects our biology, if you will, right? We're dealing with an obesity epidemic. We're dealing with, um, you know, high rates of diabetes and other metabolic disorders. That has a, a downstream consequence for the wildlife that feed on our food waste. That's, it, it, it makes sense. But at the same time, we wouldn't expect there to be that much of a connection. But like you described, I mean, we've, we've got a sizable difference between the ones at the swine farm and the conservation area and the Toronto Zoo, don't we? Yeah, I mean, the ones that we found in the Toronto Zoo were also significantly heavier. And so we assume that they are in fatter, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we've got this, this pattern that seems to suggest that um, these raccoons, when given, you know, when they have a, uh, an opportunity to feed on, on human food waste, that they will also incur some of the similar type of um, conditions that, that, you know, Western or North American people have with respect to obesity and, and diabetes and so on. Dr. Albrecht Schulte-Hostetta joining us, professor of evolutionary ecology at Laurentian University in Sudbury. But Dr. Schulte-Hostetta has, well, he's been here in London. He has gone to Western University and it was there he was inspired to do some of this research whereby you see why these raccoons are so big. So if we look at this on an evolutionary scale, what could that mean? Yeah, I think that's, you know, my main interest is actually um, trying to figure out whether these animals are in fact adapting to this novel habitat, this the urban center. So, you know, clearly um, cities are not the natural habitat for raccoons. And in fact, uh, human food waste is not the natural diet for raccoons. Uh, so we're very interested in knowing whether you know, are we seeing any evidence of genetic changes whereby, you know, populations of raccoons that live in urban centers, do they have, um, have they evolved or adapted to deal with the kinds of diets that they're, that they uh, are, are eating? So, 
you know, they're feeding on human food waste. There are um, negative uh, med- you know, veterinary or medical uh, consequences of having elevated blood glucose. Perhaps these raccoons are able to deal with it in a different way because they, you know, they've acquired mutations that allow them to uh, metabolize sugars differently. Well, it's interesting to see what you have found and the fact that all of this is kind of washing out into the wilderness. Dr. Schulte, Austin, thank you so much for your time today. No worries. Take care. Cheers. From the campus of Western University, where, as Dr. Schulte Hostetta says, he saw a shadow of this great big creature. What do you know? It was a raccoon, and it prompted him to do some research ultimately into whether or not we've got some big effects based on where raccoons are feeding. Yeah, they're, they're, getting, they're getting fat. You can remember the memes over fat raccoon in Toronto. Uh, what do we see next? Heart attack raccoon? What do we do about it? Lock your garbage. That's about the only thing you can do. But at the same time, wild that it is happening. They need to call Joey Chestnut because this guy, although he doesn't maintain a slim trim figure, Joey Chestnut, if you missed it off the start of the show, is the star of the show today, usually, at the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest at Coney Island in New York for the 4th of July. He's six feet tall. He's only 230 pounds, but he can pack back 72 hot dogs in 10 minutes. That's his Nathan's record. We'll see if he can break that today. 72 in 10 minutes, but he's only 230 pounds. You would expect somebody doing that, they'd be a whole lot bigger than that. Maybe we need to see what's happening with Joey Chestnut's metabolism and uh, hand that info over to the raccoons. We will take a quick break. We'll return with more in just a moment. Underway on a Wednesday. Happy 4th of July. By the way, let's put together a list. Let's salute all of our friends and neighbors to the south of the 49th parallel. Best thing about the United States. Email that in. Think about what it is, and then just send me a quick email. Best thing about the United States. What is it? And the door is wide open. On this one, best thing about the United States. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. This is Global News Radio, 980cfpl. Fourth of July, fireworks all set to go. You might be able to see them if you're in Windsor. Best thing about the United States, here are the responses so far. Tom says Venice Beach. Okay. Sandra says Millennium Park in Chicago. Still don't know how the bean works. It's a big mirror. It's kind of cool. Uh, Calvin, I don't even understand this one. This says rest stops. Best thing about the United States is rest stops. We have the en routes. I think the en routes are better. Rest stops sometimes just have a washroom at one end and a little machine filled with old chocolate bars at the other. Best thing about the U.S., uh, Andy has just emailed. Let me open Andy's email. He says, I'd have to say the best thing about the U.S., the historical ballparks to visit, those that are left anyway. Yeah, I like that. And then Americans can turn around and come right back up here and visit Labatt Park. Because if you want most historical ballpark, yeah, we've got that. So best thing about the United States Email mike at 980cfpl.ca. We'll get a list going throughout the show. I don't want to tip this one off, but no one has said the current president just yet. 
not even any of his supporters. Can we not at least get one vote for the current president of the United States, old POTUS? Huh? What do you think? Email mike at 980cfpl.ca. So far, that hasn't happened, but hopefully at least one will come in. He's got to get a vote. Think of how upset he'd be if he didn't get at least one vote. Just to prove that government issues are not only problematic where we live. And you know what? We're not doing too bad right now. Name some of the government issues that are really getting to you these days. It's kind of hard. You know, we have a new provincial government in place that has offered to lower the price of beer, plans to lower the price of gasoline. Looks like that will happen. Taking a look at a few other things. The scalping law we're actually going to get to after 2 o'clock today. But just to prove that things don't go right everywhere, in Detroit, this is what is happening. They have approved $500 million plus to build a new jail. But... $500 million by way of a lawsuit to try and fix up some crumbling schools and some horrific conditions. There are kids that apparently are sitting in schools in Detroit, Michigan. There are mice in the classrooms. Uh, They've got just leaky roofs, all kinds of nasty things. Now, we we have some conditions in schools around here that would prompt leaky roofs and things like that. But the real concern in this happens to be a decision from a federal judge because part of the lawsuit challenged the fact that several Detroit schools are not focusing enough on poor reading skills at these schools by these students. So poor reading skills, and again, this is a big $500 million lawsuit. It has kind of been pushed to the side. And a federal judge has actually dismissed this portion of it on poor reading skills and actually stated it this way. When a child who could be taught to read goes untaught, the child suffers a lasting injury. So does society. But the United States Constitution does not guarantee a fundamental right to literacy. Really? Really? I know that they're celebrating july the 4th but do we have to look back at the constitution for something like that the u.s constitution doesn't guarantee a fundamental right to literacy was written in 1776 you know a lot of people couldn't read then writing your name was difficult for some of the founding fathers they weren't used to doing that are you kidding we're going to go back to that and now bring us ahead to 2018 This is one of the biggest travesties that goes on. You know, one of the most important grades in school is grade one, and even maybe leading up to it. I mean, we look at kindergarten as just being, yeah, there they go, playing in the corner, having naps. You still have to bring a towel. Remember, we used to bring a towel, and you'd have to have a nap on the towel. I was never tired. I never liked that part of kindergarten. Never liked it. I could never fall asleep. You didn't want to be the kid who fell asleep anyway. Then you were the kid that fell asleep for the rest of your life. Remember that time when you fell asleep napping? But in learning some of the most fundamental skills, reading and mathematics, a lot of those come in the first grade. And if you don't get those now because you can't fail anymore, there are kids that are pushed along. And I can understand the part of it that says, hey, 
We can't be failing kids because it does a lot to their social structure that is detrimental. Okay, then let's make sure that every child is leaving the first grade with those fundamental skills. And if reading falls apart early and they're not getting any help at home, it doesn't get better later. In fact, if they're not getting help at home, not much gets better later. You've got to have that team effort in order to provide somebody with a good education. So seeing a judge dismiss this saying there's no constitutional right to literacy, well, it may not be in the Constitution, but could we at least agree that it's a fundamental part of life and that right there should make it a right? Coming up, we are going to talk about day camps. We have to talk about the Thai rescue. I don't know how closely you've looked at this story, but if you don't know the whole story, well, we'll bring that to you later on next half hour. Plus, Brian Ohl is going to join us, general manager of Budweiser Gardens, just after 2 o'clock. And we'll look into scalping laws in Ontario. The Ford government has decided to take a piece of legislation that the liberals were putting together and has said, ah, just a second here, let's, let's not go ahead with this because... We don't necessarily believe it's going to work, so we'll investigate that, too. London Live with Mike Stubbs. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Fourth of July. You still can't help but get caught up in the hype, right? We had a lot of fun on Sunday. Now we live vicariously through everybody below the 49th parallel. Just asking this question today. We'll take some emails throughout the show. We've already got a pretty decent list going. What is great about the United States? And if you want to take it tongue-in-cheek, some people have, but what's it, what is great about the United States? I really have no issue with the United States whatsoever. Some of the things that are coming out of it, some of the things that are happening, well, sure. I mean, you may have caught it yesterday. We went through the list of things that are going up 10% based on the trade war that we're now in and how much Canada stands to lose in all of this. I mean, when pizza and quiche, mayonnaise and salad dressing, whiskey, hair lacquers, toilet paper. I don't want to pay any more for toilet paper. When they all go up in price, that's tough. So there are some things that I'm not overly thrilled about. But what is great about the United States? Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Brian says the best thing about the U.S. is that it isn't Canada. Tom says President Trump. I was hoping we'd get a vote for President Trump. Tom, thank you. President Trump, and Tom goes on from there. He says, President Trump, who has put an end to politically correct nonsense and is making a concerted effort to rid the country of illegal immigrants and terrorists. Tom, I don't share things in the same vein that you do. I don't like the way he's doing that. In fact, I don't think it's the right way to do it. And Al says, the U.S. Constitution does not guarantee the right to literacy, but did anyone mention the Second Amendment of that same document? That's right. Literacy is not a right, but bearing arms is. Because what was written in 1787 must be applicable now, and if it wasn't written in 1787, no one needs it. Weren't you talking about what's great in America? That's from Al. 519-643-2222 if you want to weigh in using your voice. Or you can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Oprah Winfrey has spoken up. Because here's something that I do find fascinating about the United States. The next election. Not the midterms that are coming up. 
I mean, you can you can break all of those down and take a look at what it, what that's going to mean to their governmental system. But the next election, because if I believe one thing about President Donald Trump, he's very divisive. He's very polarizing. So you've got people who are very much in favor of what he's doing. Tom, who just emailed, would be one of those individuals. But you've got people who are not happy with what he is doing. And the divide that is going to exist is going to take a very special someone to defeat. I really believe that. Because you do have a polarizing figure who is playing to his strengths. So let's examine in just a minute what kind of a candidate it would take to run against Donald Trump. Because I don't think you can put somebody out there named Janice Stevenson and I'm making this up. There is no Janice Stevenson, at least as far as I know. Or you can't put somebody out there named Stephen Janison. I don't know who that is. I'm making him up. In other words, people that have not been heard of, people who do not have name recognition, I don't think you can do that. I think Donald Trump would walk all over somebody like that. So who exactly does run? Well, Oprah Winfrey has spoken up about this. A couple of more emails before we go on what you like about the United States. Chris says, First and Second Amendment, without a doubt. All right. Uh, very nice. Uh, we'll get to more emails in just a moment. Mike at 980cfpl.ca. What do you like about the United States and the next U.S. federal election? What would it take to beat Donald Trump? Many people are going to be hoping that he continues just like the last few presidents and serves a second term. There are going to be those saying, no, the world can't handle that. But in my mind, it's going to take a very special candidate to make a change. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. What is great about the United States? We're compiling a very quick list here. Think back to the Golden Globes. Think back to Oprah Winfrey's speech in which she passionately said things like, a new day is on the horizon. You remember it. Well, a lot of people started thinking, hey, if Donald Trump can win in 2016, how about Oprah Winfrey in 2020? And Oprah Winfrey did a recent interview, and some of the stuff that she's come out with is pretty comical. She said, quote, I had people, wealthy billionaires, calling me up and saying, I can get you a billion dollars. I can run your campaign. And so she started saying that many people saying something made me think, am I at least supposed to look at the question? And she says she's dealing with this in prayer. She asked God, if you think I'm supposed to run, you got to tell me. And it has to be so clear that not even I can miss it. And she says, I haven't gotten that. And she also said she thinks running a campaign that it would take to win would absolutely kill her. Look back to Hillary Clinton. Look back at the health issues. Donald Trump, to say one thing, is a guy who can deal with all kinds of sleepless nights. I mean, he's a guy in his 70s. He was able to get through that campaign. So no Oprah. Who then? Who did Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Do we turn to him? The last president who did not serve two terms. Think about that. George Bush Sr. was the last president who didn't. And who was he beaten by? 
He was beaten by Bill Clinton. Now, how did Clinton turn that campaign? I don't know if I'm arguing it right. You might have your own view on this. But Bill Clinton turned that campaign by appearing as much as he did on MTV. He got the young people involved. Remember Bill Clinton playing the sax? He would go on MTV and take questions from kids, and he really started to reach a young audience. And I'm just using my old memory here, and I don't know if the hamster in the wheel is is spitting this out correctly, but didn't the United States have one of the best voter turnouts for young people in that particular election? Pretty sure that they did. But what would it take this time around? Do you have to run a movie star candidate? Because you can argue, no, you don't. But if we go back to the last celebrity, it would be Ronald Reagan, wouldn't it? For all that bedtime for Bonzo got him, bedtime for Bonzo, The Apprentice, I think it was roughly the same show. But for all that that got him, Bedtime for Bonzo's Ronald Reagan served two terms, and he was beaten, but he he wasn't beaten because he couldn't run. So he was replaced by another Republican, so it didn't even change parties. In this case, if you had Donald Trump campaigning, as all indications are he will, and going after a second term, what would it take to beat him? Do you need star power? Do you need... Because he had that. He really did. Now, at the same time, all of his policies and beliefs were laid forward. And you can argue that's ultimately what got him elected. There are people who now argue that the Republican Party is not the same that it used to be at all. This is a different animal. This is now fine-tuned to what Donald Trump has turned it into. But you can't argue that he hasn't created a machine. And that machine could keep rolling on. So who do the Democrats stick out there in order to challenge him? That's what I'm most fascinated to see. And we'll start hearing names in the next little while. I mean, this is still a long way away. I don't want to wish away 2019 for anything. I'm looking forward to the year 2019. But it's going to take some kind of candidate that's not Janice Stevenson or Stephen Janison in order to rival him. That's what I think. What is great about the United States? Keep the emails coming and let us know. Got one from Randy. Randy says, taking your kids to Disney World for the very first time. We need a Disney World here. Okay. There's the old Ford plant site. We have to put something on it. Remember all the rumors that we'd get that Wonderland was always going to move? That it was either going to move to Woodstock or there's been other thought, you know what, Wonderland will one day move to the old site of the Talbotville Ford plant. Maybe we could get somebody to build a Disney World. Or at least a Six Flags. At least an equivalent. This is Global News Radio. Up next, I do want to tell the story of the Thai soccer team. I don't know how many of the details you've seen, but this... This is crazy and frightening and amazing and unbelievable, all rolled into one. And we'll tell that story, and then we'll get to a topic that we'll be dealing with just after 2 o'clock, and that is scalping tickets. You ever bought tickets from a scalper? 
you've gone to enough things, maybe you have at some point in your life. But now the secondary scalper market is a whole lot different because it's now the secondary ticket-selling market. They don't like that scalping word. But bots have rendered this a whole different place. And a decision by the Doug Ford government to do away with some legislation that the liberals put forward, or at least re-examine it, it's not going through, that legislation would have placed a cap on how much a secondary ticket seller can sell a ticket for. So in other words, you can't buy a ticket for 100 bucks and turn around online and try and sell it for 10 grand. that they would cap it. Well, they've said, no, nah, that's probably not going to work anyway, so we're going to pull back on this and we're going to look at it again. Well, we'll get some up-close info on exactly how that secondary market is working and things that you can do to avoid it. That's coming. My name is Mike Stubbs. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Dean has emailed and said, what I like about the United States, train travel. Amtrak beats Via in price and everything else. I don't think they have the Via 1 service in the same way, the equivalent of that. I don't think they do. But yeah, you're right. You want to take the train? You pick the right day? We actually were looking into this not too long ago for a trip to Chicago because you think, ah, I don't really have the money for a trip to Chicago. Well, family of four, you leave on the right day, return. Now, this is still U.S. dollars. $108 each, right? No, that's a family of four for $108 Port Huron to Chicago. So, Dean, I'm with you. Cost of train travel in the United States? Yeah, we've always needed to do something with the cost of via rail. Now, they will tell you it's luxury travel this or whatever that. No, people just want to get from one place to another. Look at airlines. And I still don't understand what Air Canada does in order to charge the amount that they do other than they're a government-run corporation it's like via that's the problem but how's air travel going air travel is going hey uh how about you don't bring a big bag oh and you know what else you could not do sit how about you stand up is that okay that's coming i don't know about you i'm in if i'm not flying six hours if i'm flying an hour and a half I don't have to pay for a seat? Sure. Can I at least have some kind of belt so that when we lose altitude, I don't hit my head off the top of the plane? I don't know if that's a possibility. But, yeah, stand up. They're taking everything. Now you get, what, water and a little package of non-allergenic sticks. I don't eat those. I don't know what those are. But if you look right now at the story that is playing itself out With the 12 soccer players from Thailand and their coach, this is one of the most intriguing and incredible and terrifying stories all at once. So here's the crux of it. I don't know if this was a team bonding thing. I'm not sure how exactly it started. If you know, let me know. But I don't think it was a team bonding thing. But they decide to go into these caves, this whole cave system. And at first they had bikes and backpacks, and they were all set. So they go into this cave system, and eventually they go deep enough that they have to ditch the bikes. Now, there's no bike rack. Apparently they just laid them down. There have been pictures of these things. So they laid down their bikes, and they continued on. 
And then eventually they laid down their bags or their backpacks and they continued on. And apparently they made it to a spot where there were actually signs saying flood warning. So in other words, don't go past here. You go past here, you could be victimized by a flood. And when a cave floods, that's bad. That usually does not spell, hey, let's go find everybody and hope for a happily ever after. But that's ultimately what happened. There were rains. It is the rainy season. Again, I don't know whose idea this was. But it is the rainy season. And they were backed up into a section of this cave system. And I'm sure that you've probably heard the reaction. But after 10 days of sitting in a very small section of this cave, a British diver pops out of the water in front of the 12 boys and their coach who had become trapped. How many of you? Pretty wild. How many of you? 13. 13. Brilliant. That's the way the conversation went, because there were 13 on this little juncture, meaning everybody's okay. Now, they hadn't eaten. So this is where things become even more frightening and even more fascinating. They found them, and you would think, okay, so now what? You just follow the diver out? Eh, it's not that easy, because we're talking about SEAL team members that found them. SEAL team members who had to swim underwater, swim a long way, and eventually just pop up in the right spot. So you can't just say to the kids, hey, I'm a SEAL team member. Hop on my back. I will swim you to safety. No, they were underwater for a long time trying to get to this particular spot. So they have a few options. You can try and teach kids to scuba dive who are small. These are just little kids. And then hope that you can make it through this dark cave system. This is not learning to scuba dive in some pool somewhere with nice bright spotlights. This is trying to get through a life-or-death situation. So that was considered, and they thought, eh, I don't know about that. You can try and drill down somewhere else in the cave system and then pull them out, but that's easier said than done as well. Plus, if you drill down too close to them, you can have all kinds of other issues. So one of the options, the safest option, is to basically continue to bring them food and have them live in this cave for months, perhaps, weeks for sure, until the rainy season subsides, the water levels go down, and you can basically go out the way you came. That's one of the options. But what if it gets so rainy that you get more flooding inside the cave system? Things could get pretty dire pretty quickly. So that's why this story has become really interesting. And they've said they're going to pick the safest thing possible. Kind of have to say that. We're dealing with children and a coach. But this one begs a lot of watching. If you go to globalnews.ca, you can actually see the video of the boys. If you haven't seen it, you should, because it's pretty remarkable. It's taken by a SEAL team member who, again, pops out of the water in a scuba suit and says, How many are you? 13. 13? Brilliant. Meaning everybody was okay. Now they're trying to keep it that way. Coming up after 2 o'clock... We'll talk about the, the ticket scalping law in Ontario that is being put at least on hold. We'll tell you why, and then we'll give you some tips for buying tickets to great big events in Ontario. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. One hockey note if you're feeling a little warm. 
trying to cool things down. We are going to be talking about ticket scalping in great detail in just a few minutes, including some tips that you can use in order to try and get yourself tickets and make sure that you're getting them from the right spot and not get ripped off. Nobody likes to get ripped off, right? Here is the hockey news for just a moment. Londoners Nick Suzuki and Isaac Ratcliffe, along with Evan Bouchard and Alex Formanton of the London Knights and former Knights captain Robert Thomas, have all been named to the 40-man roster for Team Canada's summer selection camp. That's pretty impressive. Those are five London connections. One who played for the London Knights and then ended up being traded. You've got two guys who are still property of the London Knights and two Londoners. That's five out of 40. That's really good. Here's the thing about this. You could make a really good argument that all five of those guys could be in the National Hockey League next year. Robert Thomas, he could make the St. Louis Blues. Now, they did pick up some free agent help at center, so maybe, but he'll make himself hard to cut. So he could be there. Evan Bouchard, Edmonton's blue line, he'll have a shot at that. Alex Formanton, he made the Senators last year and then ended up being returned to play a year in junior because he'd played one year of junior. And then you've got Isaac Radcliffe, who has incredible size and skill and dexterity and is just one of those prototypical Philadelphia Flyer players. Well, look who owns his rights, the Philadelphia Flyers. He could make that team. He's big enough to do it. And Nick Suzuki is property of the Vegas Golden Knights. And they are a team that will be looking to inject some youth. And he looked very good in preseason last year. So you could argue, you know what, Nick Suzuki would have a shot. So of all of those five guys, you could make a case that each and every one of them could at least start the year in the National Hockey League. That, too, is pretty impressive. Something that is less than impressive, trying to buy concert tickets. It can be tough because anymore, who are we competing with? Bots. If only it was just about grabbing the tent and taking three days off work and being willing to sit and stand and even at some points lie down on concrete, camp out, just to say you got those tickets. Last hour we talked about best thing in the United States. Maybe this hour, if you want to email in your best I got concert ticket story. How long did it take? Where were you? What did you do? Send me an email, mike at 980cfpl.ca. If you've camped out for concert tickets or even an album, but mostly tickets, because that's the way that you would do it. There were only a very few locations. And then Ticketmaster came in. Then you had to get them from other locations. But again, you could go and kind of camp out. And eventually the Internet completely changed that. Well, that and other things, fan clubs other promotions, but with the internet changing things, we started seeing concerts sell out in a minute and a half. Depending on how many seats there were, that could happen. Because everything was so popular, you had so many people trying to get those tickets right when they went on sale, that, hey, if the server could handle it, they could process those tickets. So, the concern then became... You had people who would normally, as scalpers, 
have camped out, bought as many tickets as they were allowed to, and then hung around the venue and said, hey, who needs tickets, who needs tickets, and hoped for a sold-out show so that somebody would come to them and say, yeah, I need tickets. Yeah, well, these ones face value are 50 bucks. I'll give them to you for 90 What do you think? How about 75 Okay, 70 we've got a deal. And that would happen. Well, now scalpers were getting wise and starting to use bots and buying up all kinds of tickets and throwing them on secondary ticket-selling markets, which, when they were first created, were a really good idea. If you had tickets to, say, a sporting event, and you went online, you could sell those, even though you'd already purchased them, usually at a reduced rate, just to get rid of them, just to get something back. We still do this every year. Every year, our family goes to see the Detroit Lions in the preseason. It's become a little tradition. And because I'm a cheap guy, I will go to a secondary market and I will gladly buy the tickets of somebody who has season tickets and had to buy those ones who is selling them for $8 American each. And we'll sit in the 300 level and we'll have a great old time. And that's become a family tradition. That's the way that those secondary markets were intended, those secondary Internet sites, where if you had something that you'd already purchased, you could give it away. But then scalpers decided, you know what, we could also hike up the price. And sometimes things get a little crazy. And that's why we saw the Ontario Liberals put together some legislation before they were ousted from office. And that legislation was going to cap the amount that you could increase the price of tickets. So it was going to cap it at 50%. Well, the Doug Ford PCs have come in and they've said, you know what, we've looked at this legislation. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. How could you possibly enforce this? So let's put a hold on this. So that's where we're left with. The headline that tells us that scalping tickets in Ontario still going to go on the way it always has. So let's get a little more insight into this. Joining us is Brian Ohl, who's the general manager of Budweiser Gardens, as we kind of dig deep. Brian, how are things? Things are good. I guess. I yeah. have seen nothing but amazing reviews from Shania Twain's show. Oh, I tell you, what, that was a great show last night. It was, uh, it, was, it was one of the best shows of hers that I've ever seen. Wow, and she's been here quite a bit now. I mean, we could we could probably compare her and what Rod Stewart. Would they be two of the the leaders in well, terms and, of appearances? And, you know, um, you know, Keith Urban is is probably leading the pack along with uh, Brad pa- uh, Brad uh, Paisley. But uh, this will be her. I think her sixth performance tonight will be her sixth performance here. So that's uh, she's up there with uh, you know. Toward the head of the pack there, and Shania is one of those artists who has said, "I love playing Budweiser Gardens." Yeah, yeah, and we love having her here. (laughs) Well, another show coming up tonight, but we want to talk about getting tickets to any show. When we go back in time a little bit, the Liberal government had set out legislation where they said what they were going to try and do was put a cap on the secondary ticket. Sellers, And so that would mean that they could only increase the price by a certain amount. Now we have the Doug Ford government coming in and they've said, hang on, we're going to put a stop on this. We want to look at it a little more closely. So, Brian, let's get your thoughts on this. The one thing that the Doug Ford government has stated is that they believe it would be very difficult to enforce that cap. Do you see that being a difficulty as well? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I do actually. I mean, I think uh, you know, kudos to to everybody trying to do something with the uh, with the scalping laws and, and and everything. But I think it's very much needed. The problem with putting a cap in is you're going to get your um, legitimate resellers that that ones that that sell a, that will have legitimate tickets to resell. Um, you know, Ticketmaster, StubHub, and those kinds, they will follow the rules and they will, you know, whatever the whatever the rule is, they'll follow it. But then you'll have, which we have now, you've got people that are um, using deceptive sites and sometimes don't even have real tickets, but they're just, you know, scamming people. And they'll be charging more. There's, there's, no, there's no way to stop them because they're not, you know, they're not a registered company. They're, you know, they're, they're just... You know, people working, uh, you know, from who knows where, um, and, uh, you know, there's no way to, to go find them to, to, to you know, um, to basically punish them for, for breaking the law. Now, that would come down, I guess, to buyer beware, I suppose, if you're making use of those secondary markets. But if we look at those secondary sellers getting their hands on things, how difficult is the fight against them with all of the things they can use? Oh, it's 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 difficult. You know, uh, again, it, this is usually the more, the, the more unscrupulous uh, resellers. Um, you know, they use the bots and stuff. You know, Ticketmaster has a, re- you know, a site with all resell tickets, and so does StubHub, but, but they generally they don't use the bots and, and they just they do it when people put their their tickets that they can't use on the site, right? Whereas um, these uh, you know the ones that are skirting things are are you know using bots and, and disrupting the system. We're talking with Brian Old, general manager of Budweiser Gardens, looking at the Doug Ford government, not necessarily saying they won't put something like a cap on secondary ticket markets or secondary ticket sellers, but they're not going with the liberal legislation. They've kind of put the brakes on it, as you've probably heard, and now they're going to review it a little bit more. Brian, in terms of ticket availability, everybody wants to know how many tickets are available for a a show. Has that changed over the years in any way? Well, you know, there's... um... You know, this is, you know, the business is, is you know, for these artists is, is you know, they're, they're going on tour. They're, they're making their living now by being on tour as, as opposed to back in the day. It was, uh, it was you know, about selling records. Um, that, you know, dynamic has changed. So, you know, it's, they're, they're trying to, uh, you know, they're making their money selling tickets um, to shows. And what happens then is, you know, they, they, you know, you can have them doing deals with, uh, let's say, American Express, and so there's there's pre-sales, um, still a good, very, you know, there's, you know, it depends on the show, but usually there's there's um, very good numbers of of people or tickets available to the public, but there are, you know, there are pre-sales and things that that are not sold to the public. The people that uh, maybe have an American Express or some other affiliation fan clubs are a big way for uh, artists now to pre-sell. And the thing is that they're going to understand that they're trying to sell as many tickets as possible. And, and if they can get uh, you know advanced sales, and then know that the you know that maybe they know that the, that'll help them know that it's it's priced right and and, and those kinds of things. So 
that that happens more so yeah there's maybe few less tickets available to sale to the public but the way i look at it is is those fan clubs and those american express people they're all fans too otherwise they wouldn't be buying the tickets right Right. You and I go back to a time when if you wanted a concert ticket, there was no going online. You had to go and line up, and there was there was a lot of fun to that. Can that still I, exist now? Can you still line up and have a good shot at getting a ticket? Yeah, we, we still sell, and not every, not every place is doing this, but we still sell tickets from our box office when they go on sale. Um, and, uh, I, I gotta be honest, <laughs> I miss those days when that was, that was, it was always fun. Man, you know, albums, you know, tickets, it was yeah. great. Yeah. Um, so that, that still exists here. We, we still, um, our box office is open, um, on an on sale and, and we try to make sure we can, you know, uh, accommodate to people that are in line, or at least that were in line by the time the tickets go on sale. So there are still tickets if you wanted to go to Gate 1 for a show yep. and, and line up just like the old days. I don't know if you have to bring a tent. We used to bring tents. Yeah, we used to. Yeah, no, that, that's not necessary anymore, but it's still... Um, what do you remember as being the show where when you got the ticket, you went, yes, look at that. Well, i got to be honest with you. Um, it wasn't. I've got some concert ones, but uh, the big one was uh, I got Final Four tickets in 1980 um, uh, when I was at the University of Iowa, and uh, we camped out for two days for those tickets, and that was that was pretty exciting. No way, two days. Yep, I missed a few classes at that time too, but we won't tell it. anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, in terms of of what we can tell people for you know scalping purposes what is kind of the maybe the best way the most honest way the most affordable way to go about buying tickets what could you tell people well i i would say that you know you know when you're when you're going online what happens is people will punch in budweiser gardens and a lot of paid sites will come up and when they say sponsored i'd look at them and they'll say things like budweiser garden dot you know tickets dot you know for sale or something like that, you know, like different things. And those are, those aren't our sites. Ours is Budweiser dot, uh, BudweiserGardens.com. It's n- not, never a paid site. We try to make sure we're up toward the top on the, on the search engine, but you know, the paid ones get uh, preference and, and uh, those are ones that it's probably buyer beware, but it's not the legitimate site. If you're buying a ticket for Budweiser Gardens and they're trying to charge a U.S. dollars, that is a big sign that you're not on a, a legitimate site. And then, you know, um, you know, uh, StubHub is, is usually has, you know, has tickets, I mean, that are legitimate. Um, you know, but I, I'd say shop around. Don't go to, you know, the resale sites unless you've gone to our site first to make sure there's not tickets available. Brian, thanks for the time and all the info on this. No, no problem, Mike. Thank you. Brian Ohl, General Manager at Budweiser Gardens. So they still do sell some at the box office, but as Brian points out, you do have a lot of ways of getting it. Fan clubs have been a big way for artists because, and Brian made the best point of all, the music industry is a lot different now. The music industry used to be about selling albums. And while artists still make albums, 
in a way, they don't necessarily have to. And I'm waiting for the day when that kind of stops because you even have a lot of hip-hop artists and rappers who will still put out an album. Hey, we're going to put together 14 tracks and we're going to put these out all at once. Drake just came out with basically what would have been a double album. One rap, one R&B. And that's what it would have been. And we would have lined up for how long? At least hours in order to get that at some record store. That was always fun. I can remember, though, at one point there was an album that we wanted to go and get. And we decided, okay, we we scoped out this record store and it was in a mall. I think it might even been um, Sherwood Forest Mall up in the north end. And we were all set and they were going to open at midnight And they were going to put this album on sale. It was Pearl Jam's second album. And about four of us said, yeah, yeah, we've got to do this. We'll we'll go right at midnight and we'll make sure we get a copy of the album because, hey, the lineup's going to be huge. We were the only ones there. We bought four copies of the album and then we left the store. And I don't know when copy number five was sold, but it sure wasn't sold while we were there. So now you've got a different landscape in the music industry where they have to make their money touring. And so they want to entice you to go to their site. They want to entice you to come to their show. So you do become part of that fan club, and then you get those advanced ticket opportunities. But the secondary ticket market, that's not going anywhere. And it's difficult to fight against it because you're fighting against bots. Same way you're fighting against viruses. Same way you're fighting against all kinds of other crazy things you can't see. Same way the world tries to fight against performance-enhancing drugs. It's the same thing. You're fighting against something you can't see. Very difficult to beat. We'll take a quick break. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Beautiful day. We do have a cold front poised to come through. Let's go to the phone, 643-2222. James, you think that scalping can be fixed. How so? Okay, well, there's a lot of ways they could fix it, like uh, making it so that you can only resell a ticket through the actual vendor, uh, for one, so that they could they could set the price, right? I mean, that, that would fix it completely, right, right away. I mean, you could not sell the ticket unless it was at base price as well. They could... Fine. Any vendors who allow bots, um, they, they could actually uh, uh, require uh, some type of interaction with the site so that people couldn't buy more than one ticket. I mean, there's a lot of ways they could fix this, like a little captcha and, thing or something like that, where you've got to pick the street signs. Sure, or like a like you know when you when you can't get a connection on the internet, you have to play the you can play the dinosaur game. something like that all right i like the ideas it's it is fighting against that invisible enemy and the the other thing i think we're up against is the fact that some of the major ticket sellers also have their ownership hands in secondary sites so i worry that it's gone too far yeah Yeah. if, if you take away that incentive immediately ticket sales will go down if you take away that owners are getting money for selling it on secondary sites immediately they have no no reason they have no no financial benefit for doing this at all and and really i gotta say that this is this is the way it's gonna be with the doug ford government taking care of businesses and not people all right well thanks for the call 
519-643-2222. Ron, a show that you went to that provided for an amazing, I hope, sleep-on-the-ground experience. What was it? Mike, you've heard me tell you this story before. Um, the victory tour when it came to Toronto. Michael Jackson? I uh, won them from a radio station. But back in the day, back in like the 70s and 80s, when I was a teenager, in order to win ticket, well, yeah, in order to see a concert, you had to go to Toronto or Detroit, sometimes Buffalo. Sure. But a lot of concerts didn't go to Buffalo, so you had to go to Toronto or Detroit. And I was low income, so in order to see a show, I had to win them. I had to. <laughs> and you did. <laughs> I did. How else do you see Michael Jackson? And you know what? Now we sit in a city where Shania Twain is playing here for the second night in a row. Yeah. I love how things have changed. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen so many concerts here in London. I've seen Oak Ridge Boys, Hall & Oates, James Taylor. One of my favorites, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, just a couple of years ago. That's Lord, a good show to have gone to. Lord bless his soul. Exactly. So, yeah, Aaron, he was one of my heroes too, man. Yeah, we've got to run away for news, but thanks so much for the call. Thanks for all of that. At the Victory Tour, Michael Jackson, I think Tito was a part of that, wasn't he? Pass me a tissue. We are going to have news with Lenny Lambrink at 2.30, and then if you do have a concert story that you want to share, please hang on, and we will get to that, or you can send us an email, mike at 980cfpl.ca. And we are also going to celebrate, not necessarily 4th of July, although we're still doing our best to celebrate 4th of July. If you have American blood in you, happy 4th of July. We'll celebrate something else before the end of the show. And we'll even give away a prize as we celebrate it. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Best concert ticket-getting experience. We were talking scalping. And secondary ticket markets makes it sound so much better somehow, doesn't it? Those markets were a good idea. Hey, you've got tickets you can't use. Typically, they were designed for sporting events. You're a season ticket holder, don't want to go, can't find a friend. Season ticket holders end up giving away a lot of their tickets. So this way, they could put them online, sell them either at face value if they wanted to try that, maybe a reduced rate. And then people wised then then people got involved. Isn't that always the problem? Hey, this is a really good idea. And then people get involved. You can make the argument communism and Marxism at their foundation had some positives. And then people got involved. Always happens. 519-643-2222. If you have a concert ticket getting experience you want to share. Alan, how you doing? Hey, Mike. Sorry, I have to apologize. I don't have a story. I actually have a solution on getting rid of scalping. Oh, okay, good. I'm, I'm ready for that, too. All right, so there's only one law that's going to get rid of scalping, and that is the law of supply and demand. So strictly economically speaking, there is a larger demand for the current supply of tickets. So people are clearly willing to pay a larger price in the market value for the ticket. Is that obvious right now? Sure. And, and you know what? I think the artists and the managers and anyone else who gains profit from that, I think they're happy with that. They are. But here's the thing. You want to eliminate scalpers, increase the price of the ticket. And then you're eliminating the profit that the, scalpel, uh, the scalpers are going to make, right? Then it goes directly to 
the uh, the initial concert holders to the stadium and all the the actual direct players. You're getting rid of that third ticket because what you're doing right now, you're artificially pricing that ticket too low, just creating that gap and allowing scalpers to buy large volumes of those tickets and then making a huge cut. Get rid of the cut by closing that gap. Now, a lot of people will argue, well, that's going to take ticket prices out of reach of a lot of people. That would be my argument. But the current circumstance already does that. Well, it does and it doesn't. If you're lucky enough, there's there's never a guarantee you can get tickets now. That's the problem. If you're lucky enough to get in there and your computer zips through and you hit at the right time, then you can get them for that original face value. But that's but, because there's so many people trying to get those tickets, Mike. So if you increase the price, then only those that are willing to pay that price will be going on that site and making the clicks. And that's the point I'm trying to make is that you're lucky to get it right now because it's priced artificially low. That 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 is the crux of the problem right now. But my so only you can concern make any law you want, they're gonna, scalpers are going to find a way around it. Oh sure, it's it's the same. I likened it to fighting against performance enhancing drugs, things that things you can't see. But my only concern with the idea would be that you're dealing with now million dollar individuals or million dollar corporations who are making use of all of these bots. James said before the break, hey, we've got to find a way that bots can't get through. But they've even tried that and they will put through an algorithm and they'll send it through and they they will try their best to to beat whatever it is, whatever capture or whatever it is that's that's trying to keep you out as a bot, they will try and beat that even. And if you've got fast enough computers, you might have a shot at it. But you're dealing with, there's a guy in Montreal or, or in Quebec that they pinpointed, he's turned himself into a millionaire. But that's who you're competing against. So for them to spend however much money they do, tens of thousands of dollars on tickets, I, I think that's just part of their doing business. Yeah, but again, if you change the equation where the price is the price is at a level where that scalper is thinking, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to turn a profit because instead of paying $60 per ticket, I have to pay $120 per ticket. And I know that normally I would I would sell it for 100 bucks or $120. Now I'm not making that much profit. Is it worth it anymore? The cost-risk analysis changes. Yeah, That's no, the I like that. You're going to change it. Okay, now, now, yeah, now I understand. I wasn't following you. You were, you were talking about the the second half of it, selling the ticket. Oh yeah. So sell change the, the margin on that. Yes, that's right. Increase the price, the original price of the ticket, so you are no longer you're getting rid of the profit that the scalper's making because the original price it's too low, it's way too low. Well, I'm sure somebody is going to attempt all kinds of things to try and stop it, but the other part of this is some of the ticket sellers operate their own secondary market sites, so I don't think those sites are going away anytime soon. Alan, we'll see if somebody institutes that idea. Thanks so much for the call and the idea. Have a great day. You too. 519-643-2222 if you want to be a part of the conversation. We're going to celebrate National Fishing Week. We've had some great fishing weather. Maybe not enough rain. Maybe we need a little bit more. Do you need more rain every once in a while? The fish get up toward the surface? I'm not sure. I don't fish well. In fact, I'm lucky that I am married based on how poorly I fish. My father-in-law took me out. I'd met him maybe twice. He said, you like to fish? I stupidly said, sure. What I didn't tell him was, I'm just not very good at it. I had our lines so tangled we had to come back in. 
We didn't even get to fish. He could have said to my wife, you know what? That guy's a bit of an idiot. Can't really keep his line straight in the water. What's he going to do when you have a family? So fortunately, he looked past it. She looked past it. But it is National Fishing Week. Maybe people like me can get some advice. You know what we can do? We are going to give away a rod and a reel before the end of the show. That we can promise. But we'll find out why National Fishing Week is a thing. We'll do that next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It is National Fishing Week. Joining us to talk about what exactly goes on during National Fishing Week is National Fishing Week spokesperson Mike Melnick. Mike, how are you? I'm well, Mike, and you? Not bad. I'm listening intently. We're all listening. Uh, does anybody hear any waves where Mike is right now? I, I don't hear any <laughs> splashing. You're not in the water right now. No, but I, you might hear my dog panting. <laughs> she likes to sit beside me when I do interviews. No, Mike, sadly, I'm the guy who does more talking about fishing this week than actual fishing. But that's okay. It's important to get the message out. Well, some of the things you're going to be saying are going to make a lot of people happy. So you do have that because this is a license-free week, is it not? It is. It, like, in Ontario, we are so lucky to have not a weekend like most other provinces and territories, but an actual entire week of uh, license-free fishing. And the good news is it, it dovetails with National Fishing Week in this province. So if you're a Canadian, Canadian resident, you do not need to have a license uh, to go fishing this week. And you know what? Even if you do have to pick up a license, it's an easy thing to do, is it not? It is. And especially with online, you can do it so quickly. Just go to the MNRF website, and uh, you can get hooked up in, in a matter of minutes. It's not that expensive. And the good news is the money that uh, go, that goes from that comes in from licensing actually goes into a pot, a special purpose account that goes back to the resource. So your money really is working on behalf of uh, fishing and on the hunting side as well. If you happen to you know buy a tag in the fall, it all goes back into the special purpose account. Before we dig into fishing in Ontario and fishing in Canada, what is the website we should head to? Catchfishing.com is our website, and it's uh, really set up for the novice. If you've never fished before or it's been a long time since you fished, it has all the tools you need to get started. It lists uh, some of the events that are happening this week in Ontario and across the country. And uh, also there's a Catch Fishing book, which is written toward the novice. And you can download that, or you can also order one online, and we'll ship one out free of charge. We're talking right now with Mike Malik, and we're talking about what we are in the middle of, which is National Fishing Week. Mike is a National Fishing Week spokesperson. Let's kind of go to fishing in Ontario and, and the amount of fishing that's available to us. How do we compare with just about anywhere? Well, you know what? It's funny you ask that question. I did an interview this morning on a BC radio station, and they are blessed with water all around them as well. But I'd say out of all the provinces, we might be the most blessed, and Quebec as well. We've got so many lakes, rivers, streams all around us. I think probably every Ontarian has a body of water of some sort at least 10 minutes away from where they live. Uh, And the neat thing is you don't have to drive anywhere far to go fishing. In some cases, you can just walk uh, to your favorite fishing spot. Now, that's never a bad thing. Now, in terms of actually promoting fishing, we 
talk a lot about kids on their phones. We talk a lot about kids not getting outside. Do you have any idea as to where fishing might be sitting in terms of our next generation? I think we're in good shape. I really do. I think that's uh, one of the benefits of having started National Fishing Week almost 20 years ago. It was started by a guy by the name of Rick Amsbury, and sadly Rick has since passed on. But his dream, his goal in starting a week to highlight the benefits of recreational fishing was aimed at kids. In fact, it was originally called Take a Kid Fishing Week. And uh, Rick's whole idea was at that time, and think of it, 19 years ago, he saw a problem with kids being disengaged from the outdoors. That's before smartphones and before iPads and everything else that's distracting kids today. So he thought, you know what, what a great way to promote one of the best ways to enjoy time with family and friends in the great outdoors than to introduce kids to fishing. And we've seen growth over the years. We, our website, catchfishing.com, gets a lot of photographs uh, sent into it. Our Facebook page gets a lot of photos sent to it. And it's all kids going fishing with their grandpa, their grandma, their parents, their brothers and sisters. And I don't have hard stats for you in terms of participation on on a child's behalf. Like We have adult stats, but people 18 and under really don't have anything to, to say how many people are actually fishing. But anecdotally, I can tell you, having been involved with this since day one, I see more and more and more kids fishing today. So I'm really hopeful and happy about that because they're the future caretakers of the resource, Mike. They're the ones who will look after uh, fishing for generations to come. Mike Melnick, spokesperson for National Fishing Week, with us on London Live. Mike, in terms of fish populations, how do they sit right now? We doing okay there? Well, that would be a question for the MNRF. Uh, I believe we're in good shape. I mean, they're always the MNR is always on top of uh, our resource and making sure that fish stock levels are healthy. Uh, so are local fishing clubs. In fact, in your region, uh, there are a lot of local clubs that have members who roll up their sleeves and, and do stream rehabilitation or stocking in some cases. I think we're in good shape, uh, um, and, and I see it from a, a tournament perspective as well, where years ago you'd go to a tournament and you'd see these anglers come in with five fish or five bass that might weigh 15, 16 pounds, and now you're seeing five bass weighing in at 25, 30 pounds. And that just means they're getting healthier and they're uh, they're multiplying and that our waterways are in good shape overall. Yeah, we have some challenges for sure, but I think we, we have a very uh, uh, good friend in the MNRF. They have biologists and so do the OFAH. And they're, they're on top of this, Mike. I think we can take comfort in that. In terms of challenges, would you be looking at, you know, the health of the the waterways more than anything? For sure. We've got to make sure the habitat for the fish is healthy. And, uh, and I think that's what National Fishing Week does as well as highlight the importance to take care of the resource. Because if uh, if we don't, your kids and my kids and grandkids may not have the fishing opportunities that we enjoy today. Mike, we opened talking about licenses. Why don't we close with that? The importance of having a license, because there will be people who say, ah, you know what, I'm, I'm just going out today, and why should I have to get a license to do that? What can you tell us about that? Well, there are a lot of people who do that. Um, in fact, the license sales stats don't necessarily reflect how many people are actually out there fishing. But our position is it's really important to buy a license. 
Uh, and I mentioned it earlier in the interview, Mike, and that is the money goes into a special purpose account, which is dedicated to the resource, dedicated to fishing. So on that point alone, I think it's important to have a license. Uh, and, and I also think it's it's just the right thing to do. I mean, these waterways we have haven't happened by chance. They've been because because people 100 years ago uh, saw a vision of having a sustainable resource that, yes, you can take some fish out, but within limits so that there's still fish to, to be had 10, 20, 30 years down the road. So I'm all in favor of the licensing system. I think it's a reasonable price to pay. And, uh, of course, seniors are exempt if you're over 65, and, and kids under, I think it's 18, 19, are exempt as well. But the rest of us, I think it's important to buy a license, Mike, and I, I hope you agree with that. Once again, that's a cat... F- once again, that's at catchfishing.com. Mike, thanks so much for this. Before we go, let's turn somebody into someone who can go fishing in the very near future. Can we give away a rod and reel? Why not? Let's do it. Okay. Well, why don't we make it the first person who can call us at 643-2222 and tell us the website that we've now mentioned three times in this interview. What is it? If you know it, then you are going to be someone who takes home a rod and a reel and you can get out on the water. First one to get it right. What website have we mentioned three times in this interview? Mike, all the best. Happy National Fishing Week. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate it. Mike Melnick, National Fishing Week spokesperson. So again, first person to call 519-643-2222 and tell us the name of that website. We'll have our winner when we return, and we'll close out the show. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Big congratulations to Andrew McGrath. Thanks again to Mike Melnick, National Fishing Week spokesperson. Andrew has a brand new rod and reel. And he can head out. He's from Wallace Town. Lots of great lakes in and around there. So congratulations. Right answer, catchfishing.com. Catchfishing.com. Got a note from JP. And JP, I know how you feel. Again, I don't fish a lot, but I don't fish well. JP says, just spent a few days fishing with my son. We were absolutely skunked. Think it was the heat wave. Maybe that does. Does it slow down the fish? Slows down the rest of us. It is supposed to break tomorrow. And we will have more details from John Wilson as we get going on our 3 o'clock news with Lini Lambrink and Scott Monick. We also have a note that finishes off ticket scalping, and this comes from Sean. And, and you know what? This ultimately says it. James had some good ideas about how to fix things. Alan had some good ideas on how to fix things. Sean says, why does the government need to get involved and waste taxpayer dollars administering ticket sales by scalpers, or even dealing with them for that matter? Sean says, I thought as a people, we still have free will. Should someone choose to pay ridiculous money for a concert, then be my guest. It's a choice, is it not? That boils it down. You want to pay $12,000 to go and see Shania Twain tonight? No one can really stop you if somebody is trying to sell a ticket for $12,000. But Shania Twain is in town playing her se- I still find that cool. Do you not? Was it not cool when Sir Elton John was in town? Or even Rod Stewart was one of the first big acts to come. London, Ontario. Shania Twain. Second show. And she put on a great performance 
last night. Thanks so much to Andrew Graham. Thank you so much to Devin Peacock. Thanks to our guests all the way from raccoons to fishing. We've gone full circle. By the way, Joey Chestnut broke the record. 74 hot dogs in 10 minutes. News is on the way next with Lenny Lambrink and Scott Monick. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.